Hello, welcome to episode 54 of the Therapy Tales podcast with me, Dawn Walton, and in the corner, an existential crisis when I say, tell me what your name is and who you are. I am Curious Jess today. Curious Jess today, and we were just chatting here in Starbucks, as we do, and as normal, this is a podcast came up, so we have to stop talking and we're now talking on the podcast. And so, I, sorry, I'd ask you the question, how would you train someone to do your job? Yes. And I said, I'm not sure, because we were talking about the difference between how we are now and how we were in the early days of when we started. And, you know, I trained as a cognitive hypnotherapist, so... When was that? How long ago? Uh, 2012, I qualified. 2013, I went full-time. And if you think about who you were then and what, what you were doing with clients... Yes. So, you know, when you come out of training, you tend to follow your training. Um, my training was great in that it taught us an approach and a way of thinking about it, not so much a scripted, in this case do this, in this case do this, but there still were scripts and there still were, you know, it does have the hypnotherapy element, so it was close your eyes and relax and Jess has a drink with a milk that she doesn't like in it because they didn't have coconut milk available. Somewhat distracting looking at the face. It's also a really green drink. It's matcha tea latte or something. They didn't so have coconut milk today. So and green. They put vanilla syrup in it instead of coconut milk. Okay. Oh, now I your face you is said. doing that. Well, I know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the, the mixed nuts blend that they have here. Oh, really? They have a mixed Starbucks Where were you when blend. I was ordering? Just here. Where I always am. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so I followed, so it still was hypnotherapy, so it still had certain type of scripts. Um, when you do regression, you follow certain steps. So I'd have them on my iPad. My client had their eyes closed. You get a little bit of space when your client has their eyes closed. But I very quickly started, A, learning the steps, and B, adapting them slightly to make sure that I got rid of bits that weren't necessary and um, evolved my approach. and. Then I started doing online therapy, and you can't really do eyes closed online. It, it causes a problem. It, it breaks the connection for the, somebody to be sitting on the other side of the screen with their eyes closed. So did you say there was a lot of connection about being yeah. with someone at that yeah. point? Yeah, and, and you know, there's always a concern when you're online that, that you're risking the rapport and you're risking stuff. So I, I started doing initially a smaller subset of what I would do, but always doing it eyes open, not, not doing any of the other stuff. But very quickly, you ended up doing full reframes and all this sort of stuff because your client just goes there you, you start talking about memories and they're in the memory you can't go look can you not think for a minute and come back to now it, it, it just didn't work and I also found that if anything happened to break the connection they're not in a deep trance or anything we're just having a chat like this so we just reconnect and carry on talking so all the things that everybody was super worried about didn't seem to be an issue so I thought well if I can do that online why am I doing all that other stuff in person I, I don't need to and so it, it all evolved um, and so you I, changed it as, you, as you've gone? I changed gone. it, I evolved, I made it lean and mean, I did a lot more research and understanding, I did my masters and started really understanding the brain structure and psychology behind what I was doing. Because and I you could, weren't, sorry, you weren't taught that in your initial training? No, because the initial training was based on NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, it talked about language, the power of suggestion, it talked about approaches and tools, a suggested structure to follow, it wasn't very script based at all. Um, but it, it didn't talk about the whys as much um, as I would need to know. So I'm doing this thing and it's working brilliantly and I'm already sold on it. But I'm like, why is it working brilliantly? And how would, you, how would you teach someone to do what you do now? So the thing that I brought to the table 
that is fairly unique to me amongst other therapists is that my background is computer science. My background is computer science and I always really like the human-computer interface of computer science. So um, tech support was my first proper job. I had the pro job programming but I only did it for six months because I hated it. Um, Why did you hate computer programming? Because you go into work as a computer screen and you sit and talk to the computer screen all day. You know exactly what's going to happen in your day, you know exactly what you need to do and I'm a rubbish programmer. Um, I'm a creative thinker so thinking step by step and detail oriented not detail oriented at all so it's kind of the opposite of what I like to do. Have you played much with chat GPT? GPI? GP, chat GPT, your new <laughs> friend. If you're going to have a new friend at least remember their name, it's rude not to. <laughs> no I haven't Jess, tell me what your experience with chat GPT is. And I just, well people are talking about it a lot so I just played with it the other day and um, ended up asking it philosophical questions. <laughs> To which it replied, oh no, I do not have beliefs or opinions. There is, um, and then give me some facts. My first computer, I was behind on everybody else. I never had a games console or anything like that. I was always kind of into computers, but I think I got into it because it seemed interesting and you could go to the computer lab during break where everybody else had to walk around in the rain and stuff. I could go to the computer lab, so I found kind of my tribe and went to the computer lab. Um, but I didn't have a computer, didn't have a games console, um, didn't have what everybody else does, Sega's and all this sort of stuff. So my first computer was an Amstrad 1512, right? So an Amstrad 1512, there was an Amstrad 1640, and the 1640 had these um, floppy disks that were, I don't know why they were called floppy disks, they were kind of in a hard case, and they were the smaller ones. But the 1512 had twin floppy disk drives that were kind of the size of a saucer or something like that per square, right? And um, there was a computer magazine that you got every month, and it came every month with one of these floppy disks on the front cover. So you got software, but there's no hard disk, right? So there's, there's no space for anything. They're like really blocky and really simple. But there was an app on it, which we'd call an app these days, but wouldn't those? God, I'm so old. Um, called Eliza. And Eliza was like ChatGPT's great great grandmother. <laughs> And it was, you would ask it questions, and it was a psychologist, and it would answer. So you'd say something, and they'd go, I don't know, Dora, what do you think about the cost of living crisis? And, you know, I, I could look at it in different ways, and it just, it had some standard answers. And I spent hours just typing into this, because it was, it was one of the first kind of AI things that you had there, the artificial intelligence. And it wasn't, of course, it was just an algorithm, that when you type something in, you've got a reply. But for me, I've always enjoyed the problem-solving side of computers and the ability to create, be creative and do problem-solving. So when I started doing tech support and I had client or customers on the phone saying, this is broken, how do I fix it? I have to understand what they mean by this is broken, right? So somebody, uh, uh, I was Windows 95 when it was first launched and one of my colleagues was telling a, a client or customer to click on the window and the customer was actually putting their mouse on the physical window next to their computer oh and clicking on it. But to work out that somebody's doing something like that, or is it safe to stick my finger in the CD drive and questions that you get, you know? So you had to work out what they were saying. You had to talk to them in such a way that they didn't freak out and they could listen to you. And you had to turn your language and troubleshooting into something they could follow when you couldn't see anything they were doing. That's a hell of a lot of things to do while still maintaining a rapport with your customer. 
And I loved it because you never knew what phone call was going to happen. The next phone call, you get theme days. Somebody would phone about something that you'd never thought of before or come across. And then every customer afterwards that day would be phoning about the same thing. And you'd go, this is bizarre. So it was just really interesting. It was a nice community, nice variety every day, getting to be creative, having to talk to people, and problem solving. And I think that provided a good foundation to everything I've done later in life. But I moved on to training these people. So I was like, how do I train them to problem solve? And I never worked out how. I never worked out how to actually train somebody to do that thought process. And you and I are quite similar with we are. that. So you sort of play detective and you come up with, you know, I call it like a toolbox if you like, yeah. of different things that we can we can use. Um, and so going back to the AI for a second, um, it's not capable of reasoning at this point. So, um, But it is worrying people that it's um, GPT-4 can score up to 90% on law and medical exams. So <laughs> what, what artificial intelligence, when it's designed right, you don't teach it everything, you teach it to learn. So if you wanted to do a good AI, a good AI is one that uses the benefits of having a computer to learn quickly, which is why you feed them loads of data. But I think it was Microsoft's chatbot or something was hacked, and it was hacked by people feeding it loads of really dodgy data. Yes. So you can, you can mess it up by the questions you ask. But yeah, a good AI, you can never teach it, because you'll teach it your flaws as well if you try and teach it everything. What you do is you teach it to learn. It's called machine learning. And then the machine learns and so the reason that ChatGPT works really well is because you teach it in the same way as you teach um, text-to-speech or yes. speech-to-text, you know? So if you're, um, there was a package called Dragon Dictates, which I think is still one of the main speech-to-text things, and you would teach it to recognize your voice. And so now if you go to um, your iPhone keyboard, and click the microphone button on your iPhone keyboard, which will actually take everything you say and turn it into words. Yes. It's remarkably accurate. Like, really very clever. But if you did that two years ago, it was frustratingly inaccurate. So the reason I wanted to do a bit of research around about this was because I had a, I had some thoughts. You know how you have shower thoughts, so you just randomly yes. think about stuff. Yes. And my th thought was... Um, normally, driving thoughts for me. Normally, I have puppies at uh, the start of the summer, yeah. so they have the entire summer to um, learn about life. And in the winter, the puppy that I've got just now, she went out for the first time. So normally, when I come home after our educational walk, um, open the back door and it's been cold, right? And this this day last week, it was warm, so I put the blanket out and they all went and lay down out there. And she was hearing noises she hadn't heard before okay. because the back door is not normally open because it's been cold. Okay. So she's alert. And she looked at the other dogs to say, do you hear that? Should we do something about it? Yeah. And they went, no, we're cool. We're fine. So she then settled down. Um, and I had these thoughts about, I wonder if I could um, do a poll on when dogs were born and what behavior problems they might have if ChatGPT could take a poll from a Facebook comments, for example, and take statistics out of that. Okay. So I wrote to somebody who knows more about this than I do, and he said, um, you might be surprised that GPT learns on a closed data set, and it's all from before 2021. Okay. So it doesn't know any new stuff. 
and it can't interact with new discoveries. So it can't do like okay. uh, Nature Journal or Facebook, things like that. Um, and information couldn't be taken out as yet, which would be amazing to be able to do things like that. But then he went on to say that the idea was great and they should definitely do a survey and blah, 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 blah. So, Can it take information off web pages? Well, if it's closed data set, imagine no. Not unless these, these um, web pages have been included in that, right? There'll be certain things that they've been allowed to include. But it does look. There's a lot of unfacts out there, isn't there? Yeah. Like, for example, if you ask it about vaccines, it's probably going to say vaccines are good, rather than vaccines are okay for some of the population, but people that are immune compromised, not so good. What I mean is, if you could you could use something like Typeform to do that questionnaire. All right. Could you direct it to see the data on Typeform and come up with a conclusion? Okay. Well, then, because I couldn't do that, I just started asking about the apocalypse and what's the most likely okay, way... Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, of course, the, of course as, as we all would. What's the most likely way for humans to die out? And it gave me an answer. Yeah. So, we're going to speak about anorexia today. <laughs> <laughs> just to say, your lips are green. Something to do with the matcha tea, I think. And adding the vanilla syrup has made it into a kind of a glue. So, you know, you've got delightful uh, green lipstick on just now. Am I rocking it, though? You know um, those um, dames where they've just got little little lips at the front, you know, so that, you know what I mean, the kind of... I can't even do anything about it because I've had my lips tattooed and I'm, I'm, I'm day three of healing, so I can't even wipe it. Like, I'm stuck now being green. Yeah, that's fine. It's okay. I'm just, I was trying not to be distracted, but it's kind of hard. Um, <laughs> Let's just hope it doesn't... As a very visual person. Let's just hope it doesn't, like, change the colour forever. The color. That would be interesting. Um... Yes, we were going to talk about anorexia. Um, so we need to talk in the context of addictions. We've talked about addictions before, right? So addiction is where we do a behaviour to serve a purpose. And what about um, addiction versus OCD? So OCD is, stands for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. It is a repetitive... It's a need to do a behaviour. I've just written COD. It's a need to do a behaviour that goes beyond any reasonable need to do the behaviour. So you might start off with a reasonable need to make sure you switch the light off when you leave the room. But the OCD is your thought saying, you haven't done it, you forgot to switch the light off, so you go and repeat it. And then your, your brain starts telling you things like, well, you need to repeat it enough times as bad things will happen. So what's happening beneath the surface to make that, that question? Like... Yeah, so OCD comes from something has happened in your life that felt very much outside of your control that caused an intense emotional response. It can be an animal dying, it can be a loved one dying, but it can also be somebody um, not telling you something because they didn't think you could handle it, and you That's then learning that you can't handle it. And can this happen from quite a young age? Yeah, it's, it's any of the childhood stuff can create um, OCD-type Behavior. And when would you, what was the earliest you would see an OCT type behaviour? You would probably not see it like in the three or four year olds, um, but you very often in like five, six year olds when we're starting really to develop, see behaviour around eating. So selective eating disorder or AFRED, also, I don't know what it even stands for, they call, they call it different things all the time, is where the first thing a child can control is what they eat. 
And so if you've got any behavior things where a need to control, very often food's the first thing. No, I won't eat that. I won't eat anything with texture. I won't eat anything with this color. I won't let my peas touch my chips or whatever. You know, you, you kind of get into this. So you get this kind of obsessive need-driven behavior that I must not do this or I must do this. So what's the fixed action? The fixed action can be anything. So in the case of um, selective eating, eating is the fixed action, eating to survive, and then the learned behavior that is, if I control that, I control my circumstances. So it comes back down to control? It comes to control. So OCD is the control is the key word. Most people who have it don't have the one that we all associate, flicking the light switch on and off, counting seven, not counting on, standing on the cracks in the pavement. Most people don't have that. Most people have perpetual thoughts about bad things happening. And, you know, every time they hear it, they, you know, we get a lot of health anxiety. That's an OCD. So I had, um, as a child, I don't remember when I grew it, I think it must have been around puberty, but as a, I'm guessing, like, seven, eight, nine, ten, something like that, I had the um, switching lights on and off, or my mum's going to die. Yes. Yep. Um, holding my breath to ten, or my mum's going to die. So I don't know as always why my mum, what's it to do with my mum, I don't know, but I did have, um, I, I caught her... I think I was on holiday and my aunt was smoking and shit my mum out and I was terrified that my mum was going to start smoking like, but not even just terrified, like she was going to die if she smoked. Yeah, so you can easily, when your brain doesn't understand something, easily make something far bigger than it is. You know, so somebody could say, uh, so you could lose somebody through cancer and then you have a niggle and you're like, that niggle could be cancer. So you're trying to find meaning? Yeah, I think it's your thoughts that cause the problem with OCD. It's OCD thoughts. They're always OCD thoughts. If I don't do this, then this will happen. And how did I outgrow that? I think um, I think your nature means that you kind of logic yourself out of everything. It's like it's not a big deal. You know, don't be that. I like that. Yeah, and, and I think so. Most people will. It depends how the people around them react to it, because actually we know all behaviour serves a purpose. And even bad behavior that gets you attention is better than no attention. So the minute you kind of get caught in this selective eating, you realize you have power and you're likely to exert power. And it becomes a habit. Because of how people react. Because of how people react, okay. right? You're going to get lots of attention. So that's interesting. Because I never told anybody. Yep. I don't think anybody reacted because they didn't know. Yep. And then I grew it because yep. it didn't have any purpose. So what you're saying is that somebody who has... Uh, role models around them who may be acting in a concerned manner would be reinforced and inadvertently that can, re can be reinforcing that behavior because that behavior is now getting you what you need and now the behavior is serving a purpose like an addictive behavior so it, the, the interesting thing about OCD type behavior is it can start off as perfectly reasonable but it's the inability to stop it yes that causes it to well, become the inability obsessive. to stop but also the the continual pat pattern of reinforcement yeah and then the escalation of it to be something that is now damaging to your life limiting your life and that's the interesting bit because it's become habitual but even though it's damaging and even though people die of it it still overrides any natural yeah. primitive so a really simple example would be nail biting um so it's really common for 
people, when they're anxious, start biting their nails. It's a real, whether you see somebody else do it or you just start doing it. And then that kind of repetition of a behavior is, is quite satisfying, it's self-soothing. Because of the emotional response underneath? Yeah, so the emotional response will be anxiety. You know, it, 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 it's a coping mechanism to bite your nails, to self-soothe for the anxiety. That would be your normal pattern that you go through. So the, so the action of the nail biting yeah. is releasing Dopamine. good chemistry that then tells the body that felt good, keep doing that. Yeah. So that's dopamine. So I was listening to the Huberman podcast earlier in the week, and he was talking one of the interesting things about dopamine is it peaks to incentivize. So you said dopamine peaks to get you to bite your nails because you're like, this, this is the reward. But as soon as you start doing it, we know the dopamine disappears. But what he was talking about, it doesn't disappear. It goes lower than it started. So you actually end up in dopamine deficit so you have a boost and then a, a reduction, which so you is want like to do it again drug addiction, to get right? It. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah. Need to, but you need to do it more each time to get the same hit. Same effect. Because of the effect of dopamine receptors. So, so you start biting your nails because you think this is a good idea and it kind of helps. You then get the dopamine for the habit and then you can't stop doing the habit because you need the dopamine to be able to do it. And then you don't even realize you're doing it. Most people who are biting their nails don't even realize they're doing it anymore until a parent's going, stop biting your nails. But what happens is people who nail bite, they end up going too far down and they get infections. They, get, they go into the skin and they get infections and they end up with like massively infected fingers. But it can't stop them because it's so habitual and they need the dopamine that the price they're paying is not even a factor in the action of doing it. So would you say that it's very similar to an actual drug habit where even though it's bad for you, even though it's effectively self-harming the body, the need is, is the there. Need, so the instant gratification need overrides any long-term logical, this is not good for me. And so if I'm working with somebody on nail biting, I have two things that I need to do. One is I need to get rid of the source for why they started nail biting in the first place. So I need to work out what the anxiety is behind it and I need to get rid of that. But that's not going to change whether they bite their nails or not because they've still got the dopamine and the... the pathways so then I need to break the habit by providing a redirect which is what I usually use tapping for so I teach I get rid of the problem and then I teach them how to tap so that if they do find the need to nail bite instead of nail biting they can just do the tapping and they can just create a new pathway so what do you think would happen if somebody went to uh, rehab so two things. First yep. of all, rehab for um, an actual physical drug addiction without changing the underlying emotional response of why we're taking drugs. And what do you think would happen if we physically stopped them nail biting without changing the underlying emotional need of why they're doing the behavior in the first place? So any rehab will deal with the emotional level, not the habitual level. Apart from like um, intense withdrawal therapy, you know, where you're doing a totally different lifestyle and you don't have access to it. Um, but generally you're going to start with the emotional level, but it doesn't change the habits. So the so, habit will continue as soon as you have access to the thing. Unless you've changed the underlying response. Unless you change the habit pathways as well. So this is upsetting for, for me because as I've learned this with you this last year, um, it's obviously helped me greatly in changing emotional responses for the dogs. But also on a personal level, my, both my grandparents were addicted to, to alcohol and they went through 
I'm going to call it rehab really loosely because it was literally yeah. just hospital or a, um, a, a sort of care centre where there was withdrawal and you know a lot of physicalness with that, uh, physical ill health with that. But there was never the emotional understanding of why we're taking it in the first place. So as soon as there was the release, there was the need to go back to that again. Um, and so it's it's devastating and upsetting to, that I lost that that part of my childhood with my grandparents because people didn't understand what they were. Yeah. The adults around them didn't understand how to deal with um, that particular form of awful. drug taking. It's awful. It really is. It's like you know I don't get many clients who've got severe alcoholism. Um, because there's a real physical downside of coming off alcohol, like heroin or other hard drugs. So you can't just sort out their emotional basis and have it change. So um, most people I deal with alcohol addiction are the casual drinkers who can't stop casually drinking. Okay. Um, but it's... Uh, so my brother has come off methadone. That's the first time in his adult life he's not been addicted to any substance. And the reason he's, he's, he's able to come off is because he was brain damaged and has no emotional connection to his early childhood. So it was just the physical. It was just got rid of the emotional thing. And so and that's the, super interesting for a case study, but really bad for people who don't understand the emotional because they'll just think it's just a physical yeah. thing. And I think that's the perception with addicts, especially the ones that are on harder stuff because the behaviours they have to do to maintain their habit, the effect it has on their family around them, is devastating and is, is awful to kind of go there's something that you could do to help them in a talking therapy kind of way seems ridiculous but absolutely any of these behaviors you have to start with the emotional level because otherwise you're just going to continue to do what works so if you cleared um if you didn't clear the emotional level but broke the habit you would still need to find a behavior something. that was a coping mechanism, which is why people who stop smoking often start eating, because you still need something, because you've still got that in the way. So when I'm trying to describe to people um, how your particular style of therapy works, I often say to them that you break the coping mechanism that people have had, and sometimes it's not as severe as a drug addiction, nope. even though we know that dopamine is essentially um, what's happening underneath. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'll often, you know, in, in, encourage and, and uh, explain it that way, that you're breaking that, that coping mechanism someone's had for a long time. And it's interesting for me to see people, I think I've spoken about that before, where people that I know that have gone through the process with you, um, it's it's hard stages afterwards, because if we've had coping mechan mechanisms, now I'm going to get excitable because I've got double the caffeine because of my matcha, right? <laughs> So I have to slow things down and try and be self-aware. So um, it's when you've broken the coping mechanisms, you leave them with, well, what do I do now? Yeah. And sometimes that means going back in time to where you would have learned as a young adult from relationships how to behave and how not to behave. Because previously you may have had a coping mechanism, for example, of withdrawing from yes. any emotional talk. Absolutely. It's a, it's a huge challenge um, after we've done the getting rid of the thing that has been switching their brain off after we've done the reprogramming, that first reprogramming. So one of the most common things is if you've got um, low self-confidence, low self-esteem, you've spent your life hiding, shutting down, not interacting, um, and then dawn comes along and we reframe it and we reprogram it so that you don't feel that everybody, you know, you're unlovable and nobody likes you and you can now go out into the world. So you might say, no, Jess, I won't do that. I don't want to do that anymore. 
Now, if you've never said no to Jess before, then you're not used to now what to do when Jess responds, right? So if I upset you or um, you kind of argue with me, I'm like, as a child, you would naturally learn this through conflict in school. But if and to be been... fair, I'm one of the best people to do that to. Okay, well, so I'm going to be understanding of that's okay. Well, I'm not going to take it personally. Exactly. So you are <laughs> the best because you don't take it personally and you're not worried about upsetting me. So you can actually just kind of go at you and, and come back and it's okay. But most people aren't like that. Most people have got their own human foibles. Well, that's what I'm concerned about, that if they didn't have a support network where they then say no to someone who's very used to them behaving in a certain way, yes. they might be met with someone who takes it personally. Yes. So a support network is really important when you're going through any type of therapy, I suppose. It is. And, you know, when I start working with a client, from the point at which we have our first session, they can message me at any point. And I tell them to, it's your journey, you own it, message me. If it's like two o'clock in the morning, I'm a grown-up, I get to choose when I respond to messages. Which is why you do not charge enough, because you're not just doing three sessions. Oh, no, you're I'm not. Doing... It's way more. <laughs> it's lifetime. <laughs> yeah. They have me on tap for lifetime support because they can message me and go, oh, my God, how do I deal with this? And the nice thing about the three-session block is it means that we do all the work, or a lot of the work in the first session. The second session happens two weeks later as a critical catch-up where we start locking things in. Can we, sorry, I did a pause there. Can we explain more about the first session? Because I, I do believe that's where most of the work happens. But I also think, because I've got personal experience of, of you helping people with trauma. So once again, for listeners, um, I've been on a journey with Dawn in this sphere for the last year, even though I've known her for a lot of years, um, and been learning about uh, psychotherapy through Dawn. Would love to be as good as her um, in relation to humans you've got infinite patience. We were going to do a podcast where we swap roles, weren't we? <laughs> I have no idea how that would work. Um, and I was speaking today actually on the walk with someone about um, how I've, I've got understanding now of, of people's perspective because before I was just, you know, the German who pointed fingers and said, do not do this. That's <laughs> what like is wrong with you? Why aren't you listening? Worst German pretend accent ever. Um, and now... <laughs> person German born doing a bad German pretend accent. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, okay, so and now I'm like, okay, you've got your own shit, and you know, I've I've got a bit better understanding um, about where they might be coming from yes. and their perspective. So being kinder is, um, and and so what I'd said to her this morning was, I, I do believe that we're a reflection, or our dogs rather, are a reflection of us. Okay. And as this year's progressed, my dogs have actually become much more tolerant okay. and nicer. <laughs> I know they deal with a lot more um, without yeah. without kind of going fuck you right. Yes. So it is interesting. Um, so lost my train of thought. Sorry. Yes, the the, the first session you you often um, forgive me for saying it, but wash over that. But that's such an important time for people when they're doing that first session with you because what I see from people that have worked with you is um, there's a lot of things that happen that they're not aware of. Yes. So you're doing a lot of changes, you know, call it rewiring, if you will. But they come away from that not realizing what actually happened because their subconscious was affected. Yes. And the subconscious will not allow you to have done what you did. Yeah. So most people come to the session super anxious. Super anxious because they know something's about to change. And they don't know how it's going to work. And that's, okay. that's perfectly understandable. Um, so they come to this with this kind of really intense level of anxiety. Uh, lots of people will kind of go, is there anything I need to do to prepare? 
I'm like, no, just bring yourself. I'm going to just deal with the person in front of me. One of the really important things for me is to deal with the person in front of me. And that's why, you know, I've helped somebody, helped the person, and I've helped, I think, 19 to 20 members of their extended family wow. since I helped that individual. <laughs> uh, exes, exes' girlfriends, kids, kids' boyfriends. But you probably do get most of your work from referrals because people have experience. And... Yeah, and you, it, it, it makes no sense, right? It's not, you're not going to believe that this works unless you have some way of getting experience of it working. And no matter how many videos and books I write... Because it's really difficult to describe what it is that you're doing. It really is. It's, really, it's a really unique approach. So they come anxious with a little glimmer of hope and um, I then deal with the person that's in front of me and only with what's in front of me. So even if somebody like a mother arranges a session with a kid, I'm still only going to deal with what the kid tells me. So I can help people in couples because I can see them separately and I'm not taking into account what the other person said about it. I'm just dealing with the person in front of me. Um, so, so I've got this kind of moldable piece of clay effectively that has got all their stuff loaded you know and I can see through it I can see the smoke screen of so would you say that you were looking for their core traits yeah what, I'm, I'm trying them? to get to where things come from so mm -hmm. some somewhere buried beneath what, beneath what they show me and what they tell me about the way their life goes I know there is a thing in technical terms a thing and my job is to find the thing and change the way the brain stores that thing and knowing the way our brains work, they work as a series, a massive set of connections. And if you break a connection, then the pathways to all the other connections are broken. If you find the earliest one, if you find like a real core connection, then now you can find a connection that's later and break, break a little cluster. You're doing lots of things with your hands just now. So, you can, so the best way to think about <laughs> it is like a tree, right? We can cut branches off a tree and it will feel like we've got a really lean tree, but the branches will grow back. If we go to the roots of the tree and get the roots out of the way, the branches, branches will never grow back. Right? So what I'm doing is I'm looking for the roots. I'm it's the worst analogy because trees are nice things. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just like to burst a bubble sometimes. <laughs> so, so my job is the problem solving, working with you to try and work out what's beneath what you're showing me. So I often see massive connections like people say I've got a few things to work on and you I've got see this more than and I've got this and I'm like they're all linked oh, they're okay. obviously linked can't you see the link no <laughs> and so um, sometimes they're gonna leave a session with you I imagine and they're gonna be like I feel great that that did something and sometimes they're gonna leave and have no idea what's happened and it'll take a little bit of time to rebuild what might be missing is there any way that you can tell before a session, what what's going to happen, or what's likely to happen to that individual? No, no. So um, I wish there was. It would make it easier. I do lots of um, lining up. I explain to everybody. So everything we do, they always know exactly what we're doing. I always tell them what's likely to happen, what they should look out for, sort of changes, not to expect everything fixed in two weeks because I'm not that good. All of this sort of stuff we have. Not like it. The, the idea that people come out of a session and think within two days, I've still got this problem, and you're like, I'm really not that good, you know? When we talk in two weeks, you're still going to have stuff. We're not going to have changed your life, but there's going to be evidence of some changes. So some clients, they end the session, and they're like, Whoa, <laughs> I had one the other day. Wow, wow. Well, yeah. I meet a lot of people like that, you know, like the, the famous one that you're now using for your... Um 
what website? My new therapy model. Yeah. You want to say what it is? <laughs> you know, my lining up kind of queuing person today. So um, <laughs> I, one particular client, Chelsea, who listens to our podcast. So, hey, Chelsea. That was a special Chelsea voice that was. That was unique. Um, she was one of the clients, and I get them occasionally, that they're just uh, free. Right from they're the just start, released. Like, yeah. the, the, the first session, they've been holding all this stuff. They've been hiding under this stuff. I've cleared it out of the way, and they're just like, wow, I can be whoever I want to be. And it's really cool, and it's really fun to watch them afterwards. So I had one, as I say, this week, who was like, wow, wow, how come everybody doesn't know about you? And, and there's no doubt in their mind that what we've done has changed. So I went for a walk with Chelsea a few months later and asked her if she realises um, what she felt like before and after. So what was the... Because it's hard to find the key words to describe yeah. you. And she said to me, it's like living life with the easy mode on. Yeah. So now I have, I call my therapy approach easy mode unlocked because um, it's a really good way of describing it because I'm not creating anything. I'm not teaching you how to think. I'm not giving you tools to override stuff. I'm just clearing out all that stuff that I can see that's in the way and letting you be the best version of you that you can be. And the sad thing for me as an observer is that you're not a guru. You're not the person that comes up with all the positive mantras and they go away and they go, I feel great for a yeah. short time. Yeah. Um, the clearing is really subtle. It's underlying everything. Sometimes they don't even realize. I had a client that, uh, a little while back and she did a testimonial for me. She said, I thought we just had a chat. I thought we just had a chat, but this has changed and this has changed. And she was great. She messaged me. She constantly messaged me. And she's like, this happened. And, and sometimes it's not great. I had a really rubbish night's sleep. I had all these really crazy dreams. You know, is this part of the process? Like, yeah, yeah, of course it is, because your brain's shifting. Brain's reformatting. Yeah. yeah, stuff is changing, even if it feels bad at first. I'm not like going to change it that quickly, so it, it's going to take a while to calibrate. But because she messaged me, she was like, oh, right, okay, fine. So she's totally owned her process and was able to say, okay, well, yeah, okay, I get this now, but this is really, I'm stuck on this. Can you help me? And then I'll help with that. So it becomes a lovely process of you don't need to ever be stuck anymore, which is what Chelsea does. Yes. She goes, even if something's really tough, I don't care. I'll just talk to Dawn and we'll sort it. So um, I had a bit of an existential crisis a few months ago where um, somebody had said to me when, asked, when they asked me about um, whether I wanted children, I'd given them an answer and they called me out on it and said, that is a rhetoric you tell yourself. <laughs> um, and being me, I sat there for a few days and, and played with that thought yeah. because my truth has got to be the, like, you know, I, I don't live in a binary world of truth and not truth, no. truth and false. Um, what what is what is happening there? What, why did that person say that? What, are my thoughts real? Yeah. Blah blah blah. And I came up with um, my mother from a very young age saying, "Never have children, never get married, never have children, never get married," as this mantra. Yes. And it suddenly hit me. Now that I know what I know. Yes. Through you, um, it suddenly hit me that perhaps this had been ingrained so much that I've come up with excuses as to why I don't want children. Save the world. It's a terrible place. It's toxic, etc. Yeah. Um, but actually, maybe it's been put into me from a young age. So um, we played with the idea, didn't we, yeah. of, of you changing that memory. But then it really scared me because if you change that memory and I decided that actually I'm going to reformat, my brain is reformatted from that point with that in mind, I might then turn around and go, I'm going to have children. Yes. Which freaked me the hell out. If you feel really sad, then you might feel sad that you haven't had children and all the implications <laughs> of that, yes. So... Um, we're not going to do that. No, we're not. 
but that's an example of something that you could potentially do um, because the product of me thinking the way I do is not my fault. It's what was put into me from a young age. Absolutely. So the interesting Good thing and about the bad, that, by well, the way. yeah, and, and, and actually the, the interesting thing about that is the natural black and white thinking that says, I mean, firstly, it's nice to believe that what I do would work so effectively that it would just wipe out any sign of that. It's great. It would be an interesting case study. They'd have to reverse that if I decided to come out and say I want children now. Well, the second, <laughs> the second thing is the black and white thinking that says, therefore, the opposite is going to be true. And that's not necessarily the After case. I just said I wasn't black and white. Yeah. So um, somebody who comes to me with really <laughs> low self-confidence, really low self-esteem, may be worried and actually I was worried when I first went to therapy that you're then going to become this really arrogant doesn't listen to anybody well the opposite of lacking in confidence is not arrogance the opposite of lacking in confidence is not lacking in confidence that's the only difference so, so the opposite of not having children the opposite of, <laughs> the opposite of your well no the opposite of your mantra that you shouldn't have kids and you shouldn't get married yes is not having to believe that truth but still being able to go but i don't want kids make your own choices yeah, so it doesn't mean yeah. that you are automatically a person who no, would I understand that I understand so, but that. It, it's it's a really important distinguisher because i think if you then buy into the fact that what i do works really well sometimes that can be a well i don't want to be the person that doesn't have this stuff sometimes our stuff is how we know ourselves so I had a client who... Which, which begs the question, sorry to interrupt, how much of us are we? So if you, how much rewiring could you do to create a new Jess? So I, I don't want to create a new dress. Jess, dress? <laughs> Definitely don't want to create a new dress. That would be out of Jess? Out of Skin dress? Who? Um, Why visual, is that who? Visual, visual person, Jess. Visual person. Um, well, what was that the other day that you said? Oh, I was in the bath. <laughs> you said, Just you so said, you know, can you tell that I'm... Um, dictating was... to my phone because I'm in the bath. <laughs> I'm like, visual person, visual person. But there's bubbles. And then she's like, well, it's okay because I've got lots of bubbles. I'm like, okay, now I have Jess in the bath with a load of bubbles. <laughs> I want to know brain. why that's horrific for you. I didn't say it was horrific. Your interpretation <laughs> of my response was that's horrific. Yes, it was. Interesting. So. <laughs> Stop therapizing me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my job is not to make anybody perfect, anybody great, anybody amazing. I am not a coach. I am not trying to um, release you to be the best person so you can go into every situation confidently. My job is when you come to me and you say, this is causing me a problem, to clear it out the way so it's not causing you a problem anymore, and then off you go and make your choices. So if something's getting in your way, my job is to clear it out the way. If you've got something and it's not getting in your way, like the stuff about, you know, shouldn't get married, shouldn't have babies, fine, live with it. We've all got our stuff. So it, it's only when it gets in your way, and sometimes it might not be getting in your way, but you might be in a new relationship and now this is a problem. Or you might be out of a long-term relationship, you need to be dating, and now this thing, this insecurity that you've always had of feeling unlovable is now a huge problem. Then I'll help you, because it's just an affectation, it's not truth. I don't feel unlovable. No, I know. Good. It's cool. I just feel like I'm too great for anybody, any one person. So what happens sometimes <laughs> is... Face. <laughs> so what happens sometimes is people, we, when we unlock stuff and their true self comes through, at school they might have learned to deal with conflict or something like that, but they've never learned it as an adult. So not knowing yourself is a really uncomfortable place to be, not knowing how you react and then dealing with 
um, having to deal with conflict, for example, when your coping mechanism used to be that you used to have a bottle of wine at night, but now you have a wine and it just it does Doesn't nothing do for you. you. You don't even want to drink the wine, but you still have to work out how to deal with conflict. But that's where the rest of the sessions will be coming. Okay. So that's where I help and guide. Okay. So the first one is unlocking the the bit that's the problem. Get get stuff out of the way. And then in that interim, before the next session, what do you expect the client to do, and what do you set them up for before the second so session? So the interim before the second session is two weeks. It's two weeks specifically because we learn by doing, not by thinking. So a client will not know the scale of impact. As you say, we do something at the subconscious level. They won't recognize the scale of impact it's had on their life or the scale of changing it until they're in situations where they go, huh, that was a bit different. Yeah, a fear of flying will be a classic one. Yeah, if you've had a fear of flying your whole life, then you know yourself really well. You know that when you're sitting there waiting for your plane to board that you're going to be freaking out. You know that that walk down the tunnel onto the plane, you're going to be you know, heavily alcoholized or drugged up so that you can deal with it when the door shuts, that kind of moment of the door shutting, you're going to freak out. You know that about yourself. You know that because you've done it enough times that it's an absolute truth in your head. But you also know you don't want to do that because you need to fly. So you come to me and you go, I need help with this. So I find why your brain thinks this is a risk and I reprogram that. But you don't know yourself without that. All you know is that you're scared of flying. So until you actually go on a plane, you don't know that it's different now. Hmm. Okay. So I will never help somebody with the fear of flying unless they've got a flight in the next couple of weeks. Oh, wow. Because I need to, I need them to have evidence. Same with dental phobias or needle phobias wow. or anything. Any phobia, I will. I like you have to do it. So within the time frame before they see you. Before in the time frame before they see me, they okay. have to have had evidence. So um, I had a dental phobia lady who, even the receptionist noticed when she was speaking to her about the appointment that something was different. She was able to notice that when she filled in the paperwork before she went in her hands weren't shaking and she was okay. Wow. And it didn't mean that she didn't sit in the chair and feel anxious, but she was able to deal with that level of anxiety because it was easier now. That easy mode unlocked, right? It was easier. So it, her brain was still engaged. So even though it wasn't like, hallelujah, she was, okay, I can deal with this. I can manage So would you say that she was thinking more? She was thinking more. And, and that isn't necessarily trauma. That's just an experience that the brain has gone... A brain went, I'm going to die if I go into this dental chair. And very often dental phobias come from feeling trapped. You know, it's a, it's a really horrible environment from that point of view. I've had people with a phobia of feeling trapped in a dentist chair because as a kid, they played with pillows with their siblings and their, pillow, their siblings would pile on top of them on the pillows. And you and, found that? Yeah. Because I know that there is a thing... And did you get training... Like, did someone say to you, uh, dental phobias tend to come from traps? No, no, no. So no. you found that along that's, the way? That's me pattern matching. Wow. That's me standard pattern matching. Same with planes. They always come from, they're not fear of the plane crashing, even though people will tell you that that's what they're worried about. The fear usually starts either when the door's shut or when the plane first takes off. It's the not being able to get off the plane that causes the problem, which comes from a fear of being trapped. Okay, so that's really cool. And so on your second session, what does that deal with? So they've had a couple of weeks to see differences. Some will have noticed lots, some will have noticed very few. Um, the second session is about, okay, so how do we notice changes? So now you've got more of a brain, 
you're actually able to think your way through stuff, but you're not used to being able to do that. So let's now have a conversation about what you do with this thinking brain. So I will task them with reprogramming the brain themselves, noticing the little differences, how to notice the little differences, writing them down so they've got a log so that in six months time when they're having a wobble which we do which is normal they can look back and remind themselves of how much has changed so i was telling you earlier about the client in america that i have they had a chronic fear of needles like fainting fear of needles um and we did our work and in the last year she's had ivf like a couple of times which involves stabbing yourself every day and she was doing some tidying in her house and she found the notes that she'd written that I asked her to write in the early days. And the notes were, read a medical journal without freaking out, spoke to a doctor at a party without freaking out. And, these, and she's laughing now because they seem so trivial, but they were really, that was the thing to her. But it's taken her a couple of years of lots of different experience, unfortunately some really horrible experiences, to realise that she has no medical phobia at all anymore. She can deal with this stuff. I mean, some of and the that's stuff, quite oh. phenomenal, isn't it? Not realising that where you were. Yeah. To me, that's the. And she's a client that acknowledges how much I've helped her, by the way. So she's a client yeah. that goes, "You have changed my life, and I can only do this because of you." Who still read those notes and went, "I hadn't realised how bad it was at the start." Which is great, because I've changed it, but that's what I'm priming my clients with the second session. Yeah, it's amazing. It, it's really difficult to think about the brain not remembering yeah. what happened. And, and it's kind of evidence for me of how much we change. You know, I make a joke about I don't know who I am today because I'm yeah. different every day. Then that literally means I'm changing every day. I'm learning Absolutely. new stuff and I'm not... Um, I'm not the and same you're person. you're changing the space of conversation, right? Absolutely. With different people at the start of the podcast yes. to the end of the podcast. Yes. It's mind-blowing. So why do we all think that we're the same? Why do we all think that we're not capable of change? In fact, there's a question out there, isn't there, about, like, in partnerships. I'd asked it years ago, are people able to change? And the question for us is a dumb one, because of course they are. They change all the time. But why is it not common knowledge that we do? I think it's because we don't look for evidence. So I think you were talking about... Are we about scared of it? Changing. Um, we are scared of change. Uh, knowing something is far more comfortable than the unknown. Yes. That will always be true, and that's dopamine as well, and brain programming. But uh, one of the things that sometimes happens with clients where we clear trauma is they actually go, I almost wish I could go back to where I was before I saw you, because at least then I was able to shut down. And now I can't shut down. Now I'm feeling stuff and experiencing stuff. Now I help them with that. I've got lots of tools and we continue to have therapy if we need it, do reprogramming. So that's stuff. the negative side, right? The, when you take the coping mechanisms away and leaving them. So it's really important that they do the follow-up session it's with really you. important, yeah. yeah. So and when that, you sign up, you sign up. You sign up. You sign up for a package and you do the full package because it's amazing how many people will say after three or four days, I don't think it's working. <laughs> really? Where was the magic wand that you thought I had? I do not have that ability. And you cannot, no matter how good I am, and no matter how good you are, you still can't know how much has changed without living your life and experiencing those differences. Well, I find that um, I haven't mentioned dogs once today. Well, I was just about to mention dogs, but then you are something else. I was about to mention the dog, that you were able to give evidence of the dog behaving differently so the owner could see it and go, ah. But they still want the quick, quick fix and it's time. Like yeah. we. I don't think we talk about that enough. Not us, but just life yeah. in general. That the time is really important, given the time um, to absorb information, to, to change, to process. Yep. 
in that time sleep is a factor of the, the process of the literally filing everything and um, coming up and with experiences things going wrong yes so if you come to see me and then for two weeks you don't meet many people you know so if I have an anxious kid that doesn't go to school for two weeks they're still not going to go to school you know, I'm not going to suddenly get them going to school in the space of two weeks. By one talk, yeah. They need to start understanding that other people have their own stuff, not, not take that on board. We need to clear any trauma. So two weeks is not going to get that kid back to school. But the parent's going to be like, they haven't gone back to school yet. Yeah, they've been off their whole life or the last three years. They've not gone to school <laughs> once. What makes you think that anybody not a switch, could yeah. do anything? Unless I was like physically there with them all day and just constantly walking into school with them, making it safe for them to have that experience of going into the school. And then still, they'd have to own their experience and realize that they were the one that had changed. Otherwise, they'd attribute it to me. Um, so when you're saying that, I, I guess I literally do that when I take the dog you do. to school so that the educational walk is the school. Yes. And every little interaction, every tiny little nuance, I'm helping them achieve something. Yes. So I'm getting huge progress in a, in a small space of time. Within two weeks, that's Evidence like... Evidence-based progress, right? Yes. but um, So you need to do what I do with children. Take them into your house and so, live with them. Yeah, so imagine <laughs> Good luck. if you had somebody come to you at the start of the walk without any other dogs around, you explained all the stuff about recall, you explained all the stuff about why the behaviors come, what the growling means, and then you send them away and you say, I'll see you again in two weeks. What would you see different? I mean, not much. Not much. They're going to go back into their patterns and their habits. This is the challenge. So this is the challenge of changing people. But that's why I have a fairly rapid process. I also give my clients an MP3 to listen to at night, which helps with reprogramming their brain. So this is something that I've not heard yet from because I've not done this sort of process. I've done the, the long way round, right? Yeah. The, the back the back door yeah. way. But I've obviously heard a lot of people talking about the MP3s and stuff and how that's uh, really helpful in between times. Yeah, it's subliminal messaging, effectively. Um, the, the pathways, it's accelerating the change in the pathways, making it easier for them to notice the changes. It's just amazing that it can be done with just words. Like, words are magic, quite literally. It really is. Really, that bit is quite magical. But even if they didn't have the MP3, their brain will still be changing. Yeah. It just may be harder to notice and may not be as quick. And, and if words can be damaging, if someone can, can tear you down with words, then yeah. they can absolutely fill you up. That Which is why really I hate the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Because actually the opposite is true. Sticks and stones will break your bones, your bones will heal, you'll forget that you had a broken bone. Words will stick with you for life. You know, so it's not that helpful to say that phrase, even though we all learnt to repeat it ad infinitum when we were kids and getting in trouble. So it's, it's yeah, words are really powerful, language is really powerful. Understanding the way the brain works is really powerful, but experience is how we really change. So I can't do that bit. I can't tell my client what to expect because I've never so the been there. experience bit is getting out to the world and, and doing. Doing. Note, and doing and being self-aware enough to notice the difference as you do it. And those two things are huge. And I can't do that for somebody. So if you've got somebody with an expectation and I'm not meeting that, then they might be thinking it's failed, but it's the expectation that's the problem, not the process. But there's only so much I can do. So what I try and do is line it up. I use my testimonials. I give people lots of information about why we're doing what we're doing. I task them with things. And then I give them little tools that they can use in between sessions that make them feel that they've got something they can do. 
like with nail biting, I'd be teaching tapping or something like that. You know, something they can do that will accelerate the process. If they do none of the stuff that I give them, the brain's changing because they can't unchange what we do. But the whole point is to learn and, and see the difference. So it's, it's a challenge, and it's a challenge. I don't have the benefit of being able to say, this is how the dog behaves when I do this with it. This is how it behaves differently. Now you can see what's possible. You have to learn how to do that yourself. I can't, I can't do anything like that. So about your third session? So the third session may or may not happen. So after four weeks after the second session... I'm smiling because a lot of people that are, are friends of mine or clients of mine have it on a shelf waiting. Yes. So they might do it months from... Yeah, yeah. You know, they'll know. Or they might. Some people put it on a, a pedestal with a brake glass in case of emergency and life <laughs> collapses brilliant. around them and they never think of using that session. And you're just like, just use the damn session. It's not like you can't have more if you want to. They're like, oh, it needs to be for something really important. <laughs> uh, no. But then other clients are like, my client in America, they're just like, oh, I'll just call Dawn or Chelsea. I'll just call Dawn. If I'm stuck, I'll just call Dawn. Because now I know I don't need to be stuck. That's the way you should use it. But what happens is I give four weeks. Four weeks so that people have Between more experience. Between two and three. Between two and three. So it's four weeks, and after four weeks, I message. I message to say, how are you getting on? And there's three options. One option is, doing all right, things ticking along. Second option is, not really sure, got stuff coming up. And the third option is, help, when are you free? And totally dependent on what experiences they have over the four weeks. But if anything comes up in those four weeks, we just have a session. But if they think everything's going okay, I'm not going to work on something that's still changing. Ah. Right? I, I don't want so to. So you're go... actually looking for the blip to help the next bit? Yeah, yeah. So I'm only going to fix things or work on things when they need working on. So if I start messing around and doing something, then I could interrupt the process of change. So that the process is geared up to allow them to learn through experience, to be there to catch them if they think they're stuck. So if, if you're not noticing any changes and you feel stuck and you've still got a problem, we'll do that third session. At any point after their first session or the second session, they can message me and say, can I use my third session? I have some people come back five, six years later and use it for something totally different. Don't have people come and use it for the same thing because the same thing's cleared and it's changed and it's different now. But the nice thing is they don't have to start again they just come and pick up where we left off, whatever it is. And then some people, as I say, go into a coaching relationship where they go, oh, I never need to be stuck anymore. I'll just hold on, you know, and we, we get this. Re and it's nice for me. I get this ongoing relationship, which is really nice because the approach we just talked about. Don the guru. <laughs> I know you don't like that. But. but the approach I just talked about is really frustrating because I, I rarely get to hear from people after their second session. But I hear when I sometimes get people who come to see me, who book in to see me, after a client has had one session with me. I've not spoken to the client since that session, but then the friend comes to see me. I'm like, oh, it must have gone well then. <laughs> you know. So I, I get most of my business through referrals. And that's how I often learn that the other client's been doing really well. I spoke to somebody earlier um, up in Bucky that I'm going to go and do a talk up there. And she was saying, oh, yeah, I recommend all my, all my clients come to you. And uh, you help this person, you help this person. And we've seen a massive difference. I know nothing. All I know is the second session went great. They were very happy. Off they go in and get on with their life. So, yeah, it's a bit frustrating for me as well. But but remarkable because people often assume that therapy is something that you go into and then you go regularly for a year or two years or ten years. Or... And I'll leave you with the phrase that, that one of my longest clients, she was in my early days, I saw her, said, I've come to you because you're not like other therapists. 
other therapists only the stuff only works while you're still seeing them with you when you've stopped seeing you the stuff still works which i thought was a really nice way of describing what i do and a nice way to end our podcast which we did talk about anorexia at all that's anyway, okay we'll do a part we'll do two it. part two anyway bye